0: Not more to serve a goato or a sangham Not About uh, one, one pointedness, mm. so this can be seen as a, a kind of one of the specialised factors, hikankata, which is one of the factors of samadhi, is a one pointed mind. Of when the attention is one pointed on an object, it arises when there is a sense of uh, um, when the mind has freed itself from wayward thoughts distractions and so on, it's secluded, it's withdrawn from the tumult of of doubt, worry, sense, desire, ill will, dullness and so on. It's kind of withdrawn. It's 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 replenished. It has joy, it has energy in it and it, uh, it's it's at ease, therefore it comes together and the sense of of ekagata. This is something so that when this is occurred then we the mind is um, there's Samadhi, and uh, you can see this is something where there's, a great, where there's' a lot of power then, and can really focus and pinpoint on some of the basic elements of existence, on feeling, on mind, on perception and these kind of sensations and things like that, and really examine their nature what they're about, who they belong to. You realise that uh, this is tremendously valuable for for liberation because as long as the world appears as it appears to, in, to an ordinary mind, it's, it's very difficult to really understand how you can ever be liberated from it because there's always this sense of um, external forms and things happening out there and one I'm in here and that's out there and I'm me and you're you and it's it's, it's it's plural it's dualistic or sometimes pluralistic it's a kind of manifold manifest world of things and events so you know it it means one the mind is always agitated dealing with this or with that or being impinged upon by this or by that so it's rather like uh, you know, when you when there's one point in this, you just got one place to pull your attention. Then you can kind of you can see through things. It's like the mind gets like a laser beam or like a focused beam of light. You can really penetrate with it, rather than it's scattered all over the place. But this is something that um, it doesn't just arise through through wishing it, or even through willpower. It arises as a as part of a graduated process. Um, and you can see the process in fact is one of a kind of one-pointedness one-pointedness of, in, of intention so somewhere or the other in one of those scriptures that I forgot to note where it was <laughs> I think the, the Buddha talked about the aim of samadhi or the one-pointedness of, or samadhi or the, or, um, the um, foundation or something there was samadhi being Based upon relinquishment, on self relinquishment. This kind of aim, it's directing in order to giving up the sense of self. And in, so, in ordinary terms, we can recognize this as a self consciousness, which is self-love which uh, our self love and self hate, which generally go together, and our self praise and self blame, which generally go together. These kinds of things that affect us and which are actually so often the, the, the kind of underlying tendencies that give rise to so much of our suffering. We're looking to things to appease our sense of self-aversion, or looking for something to affirm our sense of self-worth. So we're getting much caught up in a self-conscious process where we're asking the world and things to somehow fill us up, make us gratified, make us happy, make us feel okay, tell us we're all right. Show us the right things to do, so it's always a kind of worried and agitated and slightly even fearful experience, and one that is always failing because this isn't what it's set up to do. We're not the centre of the universe, it, you know. So, so this um, this particular one aim towards the relinquishment of self we can see is is. Uh, as um, contingent with the often seemingly simply expressed aim of the Buddha's teaching—the end of suffering, yeah. or end of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness—but if we just translate it as suffering, it's—it's it's too. You, you don't really un- see immediately the, the profundity and the penetration of it because, well, yeah. So what? everybody wants to stop suffering. Give me another peanut, you know. <laughs> It's It's just you know, you think well, it's a big deal you know uh, because, you know, one just looks for some kind of sense happiness in order to suffer, to stop stop suffering. Um, and certainly this is uh, something that all creatures want to do that, not just humans and not just Buddhists. We can also but we can recognize that uh, that kind of aim. And and even even if one's looking as a, just as an ordinary human being, what will bring around one's sense of well-being in oneself, you know, then we recognise to, like it's saying in the, in order to establish mindfulness, to put down, put aside, be able to relinquish the dejection and and grief and covetousness in the world, just to be able to. to Feel content with oneself and not always be longing for something or depressed or fed up about something. So this in itself is a is a is a fine aim, just to be able to kind of find time when the mind is quite happy to be with oneself, you know, and feel okay. And then when you do this, when you even you know, attempt this, then you, it becomes obvious that one to do this, one has to basically start uh, developing uh, morality and sense restraint will be some giving up. And so that that element of self-relinquishment begins right at the beginning of what it takes to just be a, a healthy, okay kind of human being. And generally as you when you grow up and as a as a kid, then all your energy is about expanding and getting bigger and grabbing. And then as you mature you recognize, hey that doesn't mean where way it works basically you've got to learn to give up a few things and be responsible and contain and reflect and then you feel better and this is a lesson that sometimes human beings don't even learn this much Um, and if one learns this much then at least one has become a, a full, proper, mature human being won't be creating problems for other people but this is like the foundation and uh, it's not a foundation to just skip over either it's a foundation to be thoroughly explored and understood well used and the learning lessons that come out of it is that which giving things up and to give something up consciously from a place of dignity and from a place of authority rather than guilt, fear, you know, being badgered into it, then this is for one's well-being. Then you feel the sense of steadiness and and purpose and, and clarity in your own mind. This is a beautiful thing to do. This is what it takes, like in the Satipatthana Sutta, this is what the Buddha said, this is what you establish first of all to put, put us to be able to do this before we, we get anything refined hmm. the activity of mindfulness is a kind of a, a, something that helps to make things well one well pointed because it, it tends to cut through or work against the proliferating tendencies the papancha Conceptual and the diversifying tendencies, which tend to see the differences in things and get fascinated by the this and the that, and the refinements of things, of, of sense objects and places and people and situations gets kind of so the mind gets very uh, it's so glittering that you can't see the unity of it. There's so many different bits and pieces of, of activities then mindfulness just sweeps all these into simple categories this is a feel this is body and feeling mind and this is mind processes you know, just to be able to kind of draw the world in to to this body rather than what kind of body which is the best one and you know body that thats simplicity you know, and this is again it's a kind of similar process whereby there's that you know, and one does this willingly from a place of, of, of purpose and authority, not from some kind of uh, you know, negative perception, but just, hey, it's true. You know, you know, you can see this in many ways, but actually this, this is your basic thing. And then what happens when it's like that, just to witness what it's like that, when you just see this body as a body, rather than, you know, get absorbed into particular specifications or refinements or, or you know the beauty or the shape and so on just to, then there's a sense of uh, simplicity and, and ease about it. And this doesn't mean despising it either because then when you see body as body you're able to deal with it more objectively like this is what makes a body healthy this is what makes it strong, it's a, it's a thing it's not about, like, the things that people do to their bodies to make them more attractive. You know, cutting lumps off them, um, doing all kinds of weird stuff, strapping them up, binding them up, twisting them into bits and pieces. You know, kind of, you know, it's, it's not really doing the body any good. So you can say you're really into your body, but you're not. You're into a perception of body, an idea of body, or a kind of whole self imagination going on about body rather than how to look after and care for a body in a responsible way. So that, that mindfulness of, of body has this sense, it has well-being in, even in a kind of mundane sense is, is an attribute of it. And feeling. Feeling is feeling. Painful, pleasant, and neutral. So, if we can actually recognise that, rather than be always uh, dejected and, and cowed by any unpleasant feeling, and then greedy and excited by every pleasant feeling, you know, looking for special kais and this, that, and the other, just the you no know, feeling is a feeling. Then there's a sense in which you, you, you're clear and you're steady about feeling. It doesn't throw you around so much. And this is the this is the aim of of mindfulness and, and this kind of collectedness at this level. It's just so that you're not being confused and fogged and thrown around by uh, form and feeling. Um the Satipatthana really gets interesting when you get to the the fourth foundation, the third foundation is mind, just an you know we can get uh, of course mind can be something you can get really intoxicated with particularly um, you know drugs getting spaced out getting high getting whacked um, colours give me a you know pink universe you can have it uh, <laughs> you know ecstasy cocaine crack LSD the whole lot you can really tinker with mind until you get some kind of all kinds of exquisite shapes and colorations and suffusions happening there, and energies happening in there. And then kind of more on the the, uh, legal and sober side of things, we can delight the mind with ideas, intellectual states of mind. We get really fascinated by learning and ideas and the ability to juggle concepts and things like that. But then when you see mind is mind, you know, now it's up, now it's down, now it's big, now it's small, it's contracted then you don't get the same fascination with it I mean this is something to consider because if you're always looking at the high and the special and the spaced out and the elated and the ecstatic states of mind what do you do with the rest of it? you know, unable to, to bore is is like a hell realm or the neutral, is is a hell realm you can't can't actually tolerate mind states with nothing much happening or low energy states or unfascinated states so this is a really helpful thing is to contemplate the mind when its low energy, high energy, when its interested, excited it's a special ecstatic moment, then it gets kind of dull, then feels contracted. It's just just like an organism that's that's contracting and expanding and wriggling and writhing, and something that you can actually uh, work with and contemplate. So this is actually giving one a kind of one pointedness in terms of now, you know, if, if I'm not, if I'm working with mine, well, who's, who's the agent? And you begin to recognise there's a sort of a, uh, there's this knowingness, there's a wisdom faculty, there's a sense of purpose there which is, which is actually not holding these things, nor rejecting these things, but actually seeing them and working through them and not, not fogged by them, as a dispassionate understanding happening there and that becomes something that's very interesting because you see the the steadiness and the the refuge quality of that when the mind goes dud as it does sometimes if you're low emotionally flat the mindset's not interested and the fourth foundation, the, the Dhammas, to be able to to contemplate the kind of, uh, loosely speaking, the uh, kind of mind process, the psychology, uh, mental patterns that occur the, as they are. And this seems to be a a kind of more profound and uh, even more penetrating um, cultivation. And particularly significant is that in the the Buddha says, well, in contemplating uh, mind objects of mind objects, one contemplates the five khandhas affected by clinging, material form, uh, feeling, perception, karma formations, consciousness. And sees these as mind objects. This is really interesting because you normally think the material form is not a mind object. The material form is a material object. But at this level of of, of, of one-pointness, of attention, of cultivation, you're you actually seeing material, material form as a rupa, as a form, rather than an external object separate from you, a thing out there, it becomes a form in your consciousness. Now this is extremely significant. So this is different from body as a, as a, a mass of meat and bone and hair and blood. This is form, and the Buddha specifically says material form is here, is a mind object, rupa. And uh, you realise that that for liberation this is the only way it could be. It's only when this world has actually become now melded and moulded into the realm of mind objects. That's the only way you can actually, through your mind, find liberation from it. If it's actually something other than your mind, you couldn't, through your mind, be liberated from it. It's only when the world becomes your mind that you could actually, through your power of mind, find a way out of it. Find a way through it. See through it. So rupa material form, is to be seen as, as it is. So this is the uh, easiest way when we experience this, is just the visual itself, mostly it's associated with the visual thing, rupa. So then what do you see when, you, when your eyes are open? What, do you, what, do you, what does your eye see? Just the eye consciousness itself. You see shapes. It sees light and shade and out of that light and shade, shapes, and then the mind starts to experience foreground and background, near and far, big and small. That's the first level of perception. You know? Your eye hasn't said that, your eye just sees this much. Somehow, this isn't thinking, this is just the kind of basic... Uh, mechanism and then a little more uh, or perception starts to get involved with that and uh, then you recognise what these shapes mean these are human beings these are bodies these are human beings they're three dimensional things they're not just flat two dimensional shapes they're three dimensional and that's nothing to do with the eye doesn't see that at all that's that's your mind that's your perception is because you've, you've been around a few of these before you know, over a few years you start to figure out what these shapes mean they stand up and they walk around and they change shape <laughs> and they, hey, that's interesting so you've got to figure out, there must be three dimensions to them You know, and then, you know, you've, after you've with one for a while you realise you poke and it, it squeaks hey, you, there's somebody in there, <laughs> look at that wouldn't you believe it <laughs> so whenever you see one of these you think hey, there's a human being out there <coughs> and then you can kind of do all kinds of numbers on it like the ones you like or dislike or how you read the expressions and notice you generally when you see a human being you go to the face you know, ding, that's who they are so you read all that you get very quick immediate takes on what people's faces are doing as some expression of who they are so all that this is this is a sanya, and and consciousness working together. Consciousness actually discriminating sanya, figuring out, re- sending the message back to consciousness. Look at that a bit more closely, and so on. And this the energy of that is the is sankara. It's sankara is your basic kind of energy form, which has got, which pushes, which kind of sends things out. in Intends it means it sends out a kind of it sends the eye out, it sends the mind out and it, it focuses, it attends to something it shapes something up and it receives impressions and it, depending on that impression it then sends out another injunction it didn't feel so good, let's go somewhere else mm-hmm. so it shifts your attention around so all that happening just within so you get this is uh, so the impression is often associated with feeling, so you get rupa and then feeling and then perception, and sankara, karma formations, and consciousness. And all five come together in, you know, in a split second, and then you've got human beings that you like or don't like. Right. Or, you, you know, this is just a sort of visual thing without even doing anything. About it. Course, as it terms the way the normal life the way it operates is we we maybe we speak to somebody or we touch something. We could look more uh, references from the other senses as to what this object's about. But it always comes back through feeling, impression, perception, attention, intention, you know, consciousness, form, these things which are an intention, attention, and contact impression are the called the. Karma formations, because they are they're they're not just purely neutral, they're also um, they're accumulated. Uh, we develop particular tastes and particular um, uh, takes on things. So, no, it's associated with our karma, and sunya is is affected by that by our particular memories and activities and likes and dislikes and this is um, this is quite a complex and sometimes you, know, you don't really get it or you get it intellectually but you don't figure it out how on earth you can practice with it um, because the thing is so quickly bound together and, it, you know, it takes a while to recognize that actually it is the, 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 the unsatisfactoriness or the, the, um, that's inherent in that, in that process. Basically, what it always does is it always creates a world of objects separate from this one here. So therefore, we're, we're in this strange position of how do we belong, how do we connect, loneliness lost, death, separation, craving, you know, rejection, all these kinds of things happening or potentially happening to us. We're vulnerable. Things could happen to us. We're stuck in here and things outside of my say, outside of my domain come into me and hurt me and touch me and so on. And so, I mean, an ordinary person would think, well, Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way it is. There's no way out of that. But um, the Buddha Dharma actually points a way through that, through really understanding the emptiness of these five khandha, the transparency of them. And if we consider something like the most easy and obvious one, form itself you base your attention on form and you really look at a form just a simple thing like your hand you know or a simple object like this bell or this stick and you look at it with your eye and you see, what's there you know and you look at the stick and you see this—it's you know, a lump of wood but no, it's not a lump of wood it's a shape with patterns on it and then you keep contemplating it like that and eventually it doesn't mean anything it's just a shape with patterns on it if you look at it long enough the patterns change because your eye starts to pick up different patternings within that thing and your eye starts to project patterns onto it till you begin to see that that form itself is something that's created by the visual consciousness There's there's an object there doing it, or that it's based upon, but really your visual consciousness is imparting all kinds of things to that object. (coughs) And you have to experience that. And it's rather like the whole thing is a hallucination, or of the same nature as hallucinations and mirages. You can't say it's not there, but you begin to recognize a mirage and a hallucination are just as convincing in their own way as this stick. A dream is just as moving in its own way as this level of reality. We get moved. And that being moved by them is the thing, is the basic quality that imparts... Or gives us the signal to impart reality to it. The more you contemplate forms, objects, with no particular mood or interest, apart from just to be one pointed, what is this? Then that quality of intention changes, the quality of attention changes, the contact impressions shift, the perceptions start to die out, and you're left with something that's neither exists nor doesn't exist. It's transparent. And there's a feeling of kind of coolness and, and freedom, dispassion. Well, you do something with a stick. I mean, probably the chances are you know, one isn't terribly bonded to this stick anyway in the first place. But it's just an exercise to help one to, to recognize that there are things you can do just by by being one pointy attentive to something and the results of it are as a kind of quality of heightened awareness and, and expansiveness because the mind's energy is not being used up in assembling a perceptual and emotive reality out of things that don't need it and we don't need it and then of course you contemplate, start to contemplate your own body, shapes around you, and what you what. First of all, emotionally, one puts onto it. Perceptually, one puts onto it, and even just in what terms of consciousness, what what one puts onto to things, what consciousness puts onto things. generally in tandem with meditation in this uh, practice this is quite a specialised and refined level of practice so Buddha this whole way of life of a samana is really giving them the tools to deal with some of these things that are exceptionally tenacious and the things that the world believes in and makes much of and uh, delights in and sorrows over and generally in tandem with these meditation practices we're using other uh, processes and systems to to begin to get an angle on some of this stuff and these are like the the tools of the trade and just as a carpenter has his basic gear like a tenon saw and some chisels and some mallets and so on and he uses for kind of whacking out stuff and he, he lets other people use them and in his, he's got these more specialized chisels and things that he doesn't let anybody use. He only lets fellow carpenters people know how to use them, use them. more and more refined carving things. Similarly, there are tools that uh, the Buddha presented for the summoners, and these are things like um some of the the courses to these is the Dutanga practices. These are fairly coarse, uh, in a way. And they very much chisel away at the world of form and feeling. So, Dutanga really means the the principle of of austerity, of kind of shaking things, literally means to shake things off, to shake off the attachments to things. And these are things that, uh, in one's training, Generally, for the first couple of years, you're often so traumatised by the whole <laughs> keeping the precepts and living in the community that, you know, that's, that's enough already. You know, just trying to settle within that is plenty. But after a couple of years, you start to get your, you know, some footing on on, on the practice. And then you, you, these dutangas are available when you pick them up. It's accordingly what seems suitable. These are things like... Uh, the standard, like the standard's the monastery, is eating eating, one meal, eating the meal out of the alms bowl so that all the food goes into the bowl. So, I mean, actually, you know, in terms of what food's about, it's no, it's no real hardship. You can eat all you like. It's just as good. It fills you up. It keeps you going. It does what food's supposed to do. But perceptually, of course, it's challenging. So, you know, you go to supper with somebody and you Keep your ice cream on top of the spaghetti bolognese. It looks, <laughs> <That's> a horror. <laughs> Beef stroganoff and and trifle mixed together. It's not the way to really, uh, you know, or serve it up at some sort of function with a few guests. It's not going to win you much, uh, many many friends. But <laughs> this is the kind of standard that we do can do, and uh i started this myself after a, my my first years as a monk, basically because there was such a problems in the monastery I was at. We used to go out and get Bindabad food and live off that, but it well, the four or five of us, and there'd be all kinds of hard feelings over you know like who got the banana this this today, and somebody else didn't so this other monk and I decided that what we'd do. Is we just put all our food together, whatever, whatever either of us got, put it all together into a big bowl, big, a, bus, a bucket actually, a plastic bucket, and then mash it all up into a goo, and then just slop it out into our bowls. So, and this was mangoes and chilies and fish and all this kind of goo. It was quite interesting because it uh, certainly cut through a bit of stuff. And we used to sit and eat it together, so we could, you know, it was, it was a really nice thing to do, actually. A sense of, you know, it really kind of helped our relationship a lot. And you, know, you stick your hand onto something, and you eat, eat with your fingers, so actually holding food in your hands, again, I mean, it doesn't do any harm, but there's a perceptual, mm-hmm. And you pick up something, and you, you know what it is, actually. It looks like a banana, you put it in your mouth, it turns out to be a bit of pork. So it's, so it's quite an interesting way to eat, because you don't know quite what, it, what it's going to turn out like. And then, you know, um, mangoes with chilli paste on it is quite an interesting um, um, thing to eat. So this is... Uh, uh well, what one finds, actually, the result of it, is that food becomes quite a cool and peaceful thing. You don't get into that... Um, Uh, Kind of uh, fussiness about it. Because even when we did it like that, it was really helpful. Because even when you in your arms bowl, when you put the food in your bowl, you can kind of angle it so that maybe that that biscuit kind of stays out of the way of the the avalanching curry, you know, and you've got a little cake in the corner, and then if you kind of can put enough rice around it, as a barrage against this. (laughs) So you can find yourself doing these things to try and preserve little bits of something nice, you know, that you could nice and decent, that you could eat. And then when it's all mashed together, it's just, oh. And then it's, actually, once you've broken through that, it's really you're on the other side. of it. Oh, this is fine, actually. And it's really interesting to just see how that 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 perceptual barrier, how tenacious it is. Uh, and this is quite they're you know, clinging, it kind of holds, holds, and you had to really massage and put pressure on it sometimes to do it. And so I think when this situation we just made a pact. And that helped because then it, we we did, vowed it with each other. So then we did it. <coughs> uh. And then there are, but then also one can just make use of the opportunities that that come up. So my first when I came to England, then it was a pretty confusing time. When I came to England, the monastery I'd been at. They, every, they handled money, and all the monks was, were handled money. And in fact, we, when one tried to give up money, they wouldn't let us do it. It's, you know, you, it's all right. You're supposed to don't be a nuisance, so we had supposed to buy everything we needed. So then, so I, so I did that, and um, also they used to smoke cigarettes. So I used to smoke cigarettes. My teacher smoked about sixty a day. So. <laughs> When he'd come down and see me, we generally have a cigarette together. I'd smoke a cigarette, give him a cigarette, something to do, you know. So when I came to England, then I had money and I had things I'd bought, and I had this pack of old tobacco, Thai tobacco, three bar of tin. got it like smoking boots, bootstraps. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so then they told me, well, you've got to give up everything you've used money on. So they took everything I had. Way, I like had a bathing cloth left. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty humiliating, and then they gave me all this stuff to wear that didn't fit me. So I had this little skimpy little robe, you know, little skimpy little robes up to your knees, okay. pink, <laughs> <laughs> and. <then laughs> and then and then I was out in my bag and I had this can of tobacco and I think one of the monks, I think Ajahn V, said, Oh, you're into tobacco, are you? Like it was heroin or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, Oh, well, that's the end of that. So I just, Oh, give it away. Like, that was the end of that. So but anyway, I found out I'm know, feeling so kind of disgusted. And, uh, and, uh, so I, when I, so and So that added to my general state of misery I was in. And my father had died. My mother was all in a state, I didn't know what I was doing, and then my meditation practice all fell apart, and then my vineyard wasn't up to scratch. So I was in pretty much a kind of broken-up sort of state, and then we went off to spend the range retreat at Oakenholt. So I decided to really pull out all the stops and get into this kind of thing. And so I decided to take up, they read out what these Dutanga practices were, and the, the 13 do Tanga practices, like living in a cemetery. And, and the only one that you couldn't live in a cemetery, but then you could do the sitter's practice, which means sitting up for without going, when you, rather than lying down, you go to sleep, you just sit up all the time, you don't ever lie down. So I thought I'd do that. And I thought, you know, since I'm going to be miserable, I might as well really go at it with gusto. <laughs> Because it was about the only thing I could do, I couldn't. I couldn't be happy, so I thought at least i would make, you know, really get some energy beyond my misery and develop it. <laughs> 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 so I did that, which was it was interesting. It was we were on silence, and then I was not. So I was only getting a little bit of sleep at night. So I was always falling asleep in the middle of talks. Sometimes you know, Edinson would be giving a talk and I'd be, oh, sleep, falling asleep. I Didn't know whether I was awake or not. And then I also had a lot of um, in, you know, intellectual excitement, so I decided to stop reading and, um, and then um, give up talking, give up sleeping, stop reading. And then somebody came along in the middle of the rains who was in some kind of homeopath or something, and he was raving about this urine therapy. <laughs> which they used and some people use. they take, they they read this book and there's people who have these chronic diseases and they take maybe a little teaspoon of their urine and put it in water and drink it, and yet somehow it seemed to help them. So I thought, well, I'll go for that. So I decided to drink all my urine (laughs) and fast, fast as well and just drink urine. So I did that for 10 days. Which is kind of interesting, perceptual breakthrough. And the other thing was just because I dis, had, having had money, I did, vowed I'd never ask for anything. I never ever asked for anything, any kind of requisite. I would use what what came up. So in the winter time, there was no, I didn't have any boots, so I'd always go benderbarde in the snow in my sandals. So I'd get these kind of. Go walk for an hour in, in, just with sandals through the snow. My feet would get really frozen. So that was a kind of Dutanga practice, just, just determined to stay with it. And it really helped because I had a, a lot of feeling about cold when I came from the tropics. You feel so cold all the time. And you're shivering and huddling, always trying to find somewhere warm. And this place we were at was always damp and cold. And the owner wouldn't let us, we didn't have, they didn't have enough money to use electricity. And he had these great these uh, fires, coal fires, but he wouldn't let us use burn anything in them because he wasn't f- insured for fire. So he used to sit and look at these empty fireplaces with stacks of wood beside them. <laughs> So I thought this was a time to really make use of getting into coldness and try to, you know, stop the attachment to the to warmth and things like that. So I developed this kind of practice, and particularly around cold baths. So I remember always had a dread of cold because so when, when I was a nipper, just a little kid in London, in uh, this house we lived in, one of these big converted Victorian houses. And so they broke it up into flats, and the flat we were in didn't have a bathroom in it. And what it did have, it had a greenhouse, so they'd made the greenhouse into a bathroom. They'd paint over the window so you couldn't see in it. But basically that was all, there was no heat in it. So there was no heat in it, it was just glass. you know. And so we'd only have one bath a week. And that was because you had to put gas in the money in the gas meter to get enough heat to get a bath full of water. And it was, we were quite poor. So that my father would kind of, he'd bath night, he'd put how many shillings it was into the gas meter and get enough. would kind of bath night he'd put how many shillings it was into the gas meeting get enough hot water for a bath and then then me and my brother both get in the bath together he'd fill it up he'd kind of get warm then he'd drag us out one at a time in this freezing cold room and he'd tell us about what it was like in Russia (laughs) (laughs) how bad it was in Siberia and rub us down (laughs) So, I had this dread of cold of baths. So, I decided during that time that I'd I had these big baths at Oakenholt. And and I'd fill one up with cold water. And I generally got it at a run. And I'd run down the corridor, and just wearing very little clothes, and then just get into the bathroom. And then, before I could think about it, take all the rest of my clothes and jump in the tub and try to hold myself in there for as long as possible. <laughs> I know it's really interesting, too. (laughs) Because at that point, you know, when you you really, your whole kind of sensory system just explodes, and then you don't actually feel cold, you get out and you feel really warm and glowing. And, uh, you know, you recognize that the problem is really just, you know, that havering and what your mind doesn't want to, because the mind contracts into this unwillingness that you never, it's, it's only half attentive and it's, it's, so it doesn't really fully experience the thing so, but when you just experience the feeling and you're really there with the feeling without the perceptions and the mental formations the feeling is just, it's alright so I learned to develop that that particular understanding around, around physical feeling. Which was very helpful, because particularly when we started Amrawadhi, there was no heat there either. And then in the morning, you'd wake up in the morning, sleeping bag, fully clothed in your sleeping bag, with your sweaters and the hat on and everything, <laughs> because it was so cold. It was about 10 degrees below. And you'd uh, get up. Get up. So you, know, you get your nose over the top of the bag. It's like, oh God, it's horrible out there! And then just to to I, to, I developed this thing. Just as soon as the alarm went, just hit the alarm, and before I could think, get up and walk to the shower and turn the shower on, just walk into this cold shower. And it, took, well, it took about fifteen seconds or twenty seconds or so. And in that time, as you walk in you feel the mind like, "Hey, what's happening?" <laughs> and then then it come up with these things like well I don't really need to do this today and maybe just your (laughs) wrists would be enough and and showering every day is bad for the skin and you know it washes the oil off and all that and your mind really spluttering and then you you see the hand going towards the tap the mind would start to scream and then you turn the tap on it it would stop and uh I found this really helpful because it didn't actually physically wasn't harmful. But in terms of actually like prizing away uh, feeling, perception, and mental formations, so they stood apart. You could actually see the mental formation, which started out as something quite reasonable, like, well, today I think we, you know, we don't need to do this, and started to get a little more panicky. <laughs> <laughs> And it turns into something like animal-like as you hit the tap, and its its cover is blown. You see the thing for what it is. This is kind of, you know, raw and trapped creature, and the perception for what it is. And if, when you get to like that, the feeling is feeling. I mean, it's uh, and your body can take it. So these are these are kind of Dhatanga principles really, and. Of course, it's it's like like a massage. You don't, you know, you have to be aware of what you're doing. You can use opportunities that arise, uh, the ones that are sort of standard in the monastery, and then the ones that the situations bring up, like in the winter time or whatever. Um, but it's rather like uh, a massage. Is it's something you don't, you know, trying to bruise and bash yourself to pieces with it, it's rather like, you know, you, you know, there's a sensitivity See, so here's a point, and you can put pressure on that point and you do it to the point to which, you know, you can uh, you can let go, you're not kind of tensing up and you're not ripping something apart with it, so there's a certain there's a skill involved, it. it's not just kind of brutal self-mortification experience, but a point, a particular thing, and then just for a like it's not like sitting in a cold bath all day long, for example, or sitting in a damp room all day long It's just that something you can do for a, a few moments just to kind of to to challenge a particular mental thing rather than damage something physical so these are particular tools that can be used and uh, they 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 certainly have advantages well, I would find if i did that beyond the particular circumstance that that say taking a cold shower would be would be say particularly about working with the aversion to feel to a sort of feeling it would certainly do that but also it would deal with a lot of other things too i would t- uh, find that when the mind For example, it does bring around tremendous one-pointedness. And I'd find that that when things are, say, when it's not one-pointed, when one's mind gets diffused, it's sort of okay, and it's sort of comfortable and you're warm, and your mind can easily get dreary and grumpy and picky and whinging, and, well, I don't really like, I don't feel like doing this. I don't want you to bother to do that. And it's never really good enough. Like, this. <laughs> don't want to get up in the morning anyway. I don't feel waste of time. I don't feel like doing this. <laughs> <laughs> The mind gets like like that, you know. And then you do something like that. I, I do this the other winter time, when I was in the Hammerwood, and I was having this. St- 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 Thing when I was, you know, wake up in the morning at say four or so. And, oh, it's nice and warm in here. And I just switch the the this gas fire on and I lie there. Oh, this is really nice. And sometimes it would be like an hour get up and get up till five in the morning, five or five thirty in the morning. Oh, i was so disgusted with this after a while. I decided to because when it snowed outside, I decided to give myself a bit of a jolt so I determined, I made this resolution so as soon as the alarm went I'd leap up out of the sleeping bag then rush outside and take off my bathing cloth and sit in the snow and then get handfuls of snow and rub it all over my body so I did that (laughs) 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 and then and that didn't seem to be really doing very much. So I got, a, I, just, I got a big basin. I filled it up with snow so it would melt overnight. Then get out there and pour all this water over myself while I sat in the snow. Then I rolled in the snow. <laughs> so you feel really good afterwards. And the long-term results is your mind, it realises, hey, you know, Somebody means business out there. And it starts to shut up. The hindrances, some of the hindrances get frightened of, of turning up. You don't. <laughs> 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 and you can really see how, like the Buddha and even some of, some of these forest masters, they always talk about Mara as being a person and the Kalesas, we're going to kill them and it. In this kind of personifying way, and it's strange that sometimes it seems like that. That they, when you do some, some of these dutangas, these kilases, they, they don't turn up. You know, it's almost like your mind is. You realise you, that uh, it, uh, you know, you, that you you can't be moved. So I'd, I'd find that the sense of doubt, dreariness, of complaining, whinging, muttering, all these kinds of things tend to just drop away when one did something like that. And it may be just the sense of really drawing all one's uh, mental energy into one pointedness and resolution itself. Yeah? And then really going through something tends to just draw all the sankharas into one form. Yeah? So it's rather like herding a flock of sheep. They become tightened together rather than scattering all over the place wherever they want to go. So you can actually you know, you can use sankharas to train the sankharas. You use uh, mental activity in order to train mental activity. And so this is really a helpful thing to know but rather than just trying to kind of calm it and lay it and make it all peaceful and nice. Sometimes you've got to, it's like herding sheep. Sometimes you've really got to shout at them and herd them together. Zajin would use the simile of the buffalo as you But in Buffalo, you don't reason with them. You got you get a big stick, (laughs) you give them a whack, then they they come together. Then. So these are these are things that one can cultivate. But it's it's coarse, and it's it's um, generally for coarse people like me. (laughs) (laughs) You're a bit more refined, and you read up. That's isn't suitable. Uh, I found also uh, more more steady, you know, for when the mind really goes off then you have to do something like that, but then I also found a more st- steady sense of the, uh, you know, gathering things together was developing a sense of service, and, you know, this is an important part of, aspect of the life, where one is, it's, it's kind of sweeter and uh, steadier than the tanga practices, in this, you know, serving, serving the community, serving other people, looking at serving the, the, the teacher, serving the senior monks, um, you know, and just trying to develop everything as a sense of service. And that's really a useful thing because it does, it works against one's sense of, well, I'm, got, you know, I'm useless anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, really coming out, giving yourself, there's another way in which you, you gather the sankharas together into one stream and you get that kind of one-pointedness of attention in that particular mode. Um, and it's, it's very much a giving, loving kind of experience whereby one has to relinquish the sense of uh, you know, lack of worth or sometimes we feel a bit shy or timid or I don't know if I can manage this, you know, this doubting mind. And and also the mind that wants to just withdraw, so that you you kind of shape up the, the mental energies into one flow. Then this also helps you to help me anyway to to deal with some particular mental patterns. So you can train in this train in this way. These are these are aspects in which one trains as a summoner. they are some of the tools of the trade, and generally after, you know, as you begin to get settled and you you know, you know, can wear your robes and you know the basic stuff, then you begin to, the recommendation is to start to work with some of these principles um, for one's own welfare. Of course, the hindrances, the difficulties with uh, the tongue you can get stuck in a kind of macho, gung-ho um, a state of mind, and with the serving, you can get into, a, into a, either patronizing or, or you can get, get too restless. I mean, those are, these are the drawbacks you've got to watch out for. Um, so they have their advantages and also have their, their, their failings in them. But when it, you begin to see it levering some of the the handholds the, hand the sticking-pot places of these aggregates then it, it, it's worthwhile the aim of them is to lead to contentment and and composure in oneself and then it comes down to to uh, developing the meditation which probably for myself I began with that and then for about Probably about five, six, seven years or so. It really wasn't going really well at all. It started off from nowhere. It went quite well for about six months or a year, and it went completely fell apart for a while, and it kind of gradually crept back together again. So after about eight years of being a monk, then it started. To, you know, the meditation started to kind of get better again. But it really went down for about five. So, <laughs> that's what you're looking at, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of life span of it, and sometimes it's longer than that, uh, and it's staffing to develop these other practices to keep a sense of purpose and one-pointedness and connection and working with things. Then it comes back to the meditation, you know, after a maybe it's not that way for you, you know, these things can be seen as running in tandem and then uh, really being able to, to contemplate and I found that meditation much more the sense of learning how to investigate and how to enjoy the mind how to investigate and how to enjoy things enjoy isn't just like a greed thing it means to appreciate something in its own right I talk about enjoyment, I mean it in that way in which whatever it is, let it be, appreciate, don't be negative about it, give it its say, let it be there, and that kind of quality of of openness and givingness and trust in the practice. So I practice like like that, and it gives a sense of, of enthusiasm and willingness in, in my practice so these are things to develop and of course to be willing and to be open and to appreciate things, but it's also appreciating and having openness towards things that are maybe perceptually not knowable just confusing, <laughs> uncertain shadowy, strange you know, rather than trying to figure them out or solve them or get rid of them just, just you know, let them express themselves, try to really study them Uh, things that are difficult. Mm. And then through that the mind seems to get a a kind of a sense of independence and vigour where it can stand apart from perceptions and feelings and not be uh, so stirred by it all. So tonight we've used the situation that we have, you're in this particular place, in this particular monastery at this time of your life, uh, some of you here for a few weeks, months, years, whatever, but it's like this, it doesn't have to be right, it doesn't have to be wrong, it's just this is the situation, and you can find the things that are right, and you can find things that are wrong, but really it's neither right nor wrong, um, so those things are to be those perceptions and think and mental states are to be acknowledged and owned and taken responsibility for and worked with. See what you can make use of of a, a night like tonight there's nothing no nothing happening tomorrow. Mm. You the, how you can use the you can use the time. To challenge yourself. When you, and particularly around this aiming for this sense of uh, a one pointedness, of, of attention. Rather than doubting or doing a bit of this and doing a bit. Do something, when you practice, do it to the point to which your mind starts to think, well, I don't know about this for real. When you get to that point, then's the time you keep going with it. Because otherwise, if you just keep going to the point where you think, well, I think about enough of that, then you never really get anywhere. It's like it's like digging for, in the ground for for oil or something, you dig three feet down. You think, "Oh, I'll go and dig somewhere else now." You keep digging. When you get to the to tough stuff, this means you're starting to get down to where the business really is. Then you then you keep digging. Yeah. You don't think, "Oh, it's getting a bit hard. i go somewhere else." Particularly when your mind starts getting reasonable about it all. <laughs> right. Well, I don't feel so well. Maybe. You know, challenge that, that, that mental voice. See what it does when you challenge it. It starts to get a little bit more uh, animal-like, or predator-like, or panic-stricken. And then you then you've got it in a corner. You've got it in a corner. Then go go for it, because <laughs> otherwise it's going to take you over. You know, it's like these these things. They, you don't if you don't go for them, they go for you and they ruin your life. So that one's life can just be ruined by a mind that wavers and doubts or you know. so it's particularly important that you know you go with something, you're doing walking meditation, maybe fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, and well, get really concentrated and go and sit down somewhere. This is this is reasonable, but it's not it's not really getting very far. When you get to that and start to question who's saying that. What do you expect out of this? What particular expectations are you setting up in your mind? What do you think concentration is it anyway? Yeah. Then this thing that's happening, this is the enemy to concentration. This this mental activity is, is the enemy. That's the thing that's, that's diversifying everything. Really, your aim to in walking meditation is to get to the point of doubt, and keep going when you get to the point of thinking walking meditation is a waste of time then you've discovered the point of it (laughs) it's to get that thing to come up and then just go right over the top of it and then you find you do this meaning if you get into a flow experience that is, is just the walking and you're flowing along and there's movement, there's body <clears throat> sensations, and you're in this kind of, in this continuum. You're actually in a unified flow experience. And so, there's no question of, what do I focus on? You're here, you know, you focus on what's happening. You're, you're in, a, in a state of one-pointedness, which is, you could say it's about movement, it's about body energy, it's about being, but basically, you don't have to define it anymore. You're there with that, and your mind has got a state, a sense of one pointedness. And then, sure, things are coming up, but now with that one pointedness, you can see that's just a thought, it's just a feeling, you know, that's just the idea of time, that's expectation, that's desire. That, you know, it can just dispel all these things, like a duck going into water, and the water just rolls off its back. So when you get into the aim of this is when you is to get into that sense of flow experience. So and then when you're into that, then the practice starts to take care of itself, and you really get the feeling of energy and enjoyment of it. And it's not because of any particular sensation. It's just now the the mind the mind of Dhamma has started to come into its own. It's like a a runner getting into his stride, and now he's going, and he's going and now there's no stopping yeah. so that's what uh, you can do when you do the walking meditation the things are, and it just is things to remember when you get the sense of expectation or frustration because you're not getting somewhere this is time this is, this is the time phantom yeah just Dist- Break the time, phantom, you're just one hit point at this moment you know? then there's no being this or being that. There's no further and no how long for when you when you break that one. Then you, then the walking meditation makes complete sense. you, you can really begin to review these these uh, aggregates as they as they come up because now. The whole thing has now become just mind stuff in the present moment. It's not something else happening, something else that should be happening, something somebody else did. It's not yesterday or tomorrow. It's it's right now. And you get the one point in this. And you realise this is the only way it could be, actually, because it's only <coughs> when those all those those five aggregates are now have come together like one Strand of rope. They're not kind of weaving patterns all over the place. It's just one strand of rope. It's only then you could ever really cut it. If it's all, you know, creating a whole web, you have know, to dip, dip, you know, over the, trying to cut it all down. It's only when it comes together at one point that you can actually. Who does this belong to? And you see it. It's 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 just gestures. There, there's nothing. Substantial in them. And the feeling of, of freedom is a tangible experience. So these are the things that we can make use of and really to, to, to give oneself to it. The Buddha favors these things. It's rather like uh, you know, you're going to climb a mountain, and somebody shows you an ice axe and a crampons, and you think, oh, "I don't like. The look at that. It's a bit heavy." You just find something that you can f- you will fit your feet, and you can use, and you use it because these are the tools to to, to get you out. They're a bit ugly sometimes, but uh, they're they're for use, not for treasuring. he won <coughs>